we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. It is your favorite host, Yusuf Abdul-Kadir. And I'm here with someone who I've had the distinct pleasure to have known for over 20 years, partly because she is a relative of mine, um, but more importantly, because she's just super dynamic, brilliant, uh, and brings so much passion to all the work that she's been engaged in. I've, I've been able to um, watch her in, in the last almost 20 years of, uh, of knowing her and, and just seeing a, a, a blossoming in ways that I think are just so impressive. And so uh, I'm happy to have you here, Chela. Um, thank you for both representing the fam, but more importantly, for, for what I hope to be a really, really insightful and important conversation. Welcome to Afrofutures. Well, and thank you so much for having me on the show and sharing, um, sharing um, this time with you. Yes, we are family. And um, I'm delighted to to be here and have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, we 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 started in the virtual green room to have a conversation about you know what we would talk about today and and just how the conversation tends to flow on the show. Mm -hmm. And I often say to um, many of the respective interviewees, um, you know, we want to understand both your relationship to the work i.e. how the work radicalized you, mm -hmm. and then also how that helps to drive your understanding. But in, in, <laughs> in sharing that with you, I was like, oh yeah, Chayla is a black Muslim woman yeah. and I am a black Muslim man. Mm -hmm. And a part of our quote unquote radicalization process actually situated in the use of the word radical, right? And so I would just love to sit with you for a moment in both the question of what quote-unquote radicalized you, and then also just how being a Black Muslim woman post 9-11, how the word radicalization has affected that radicalization process for you. Let's, yeah. let's effectively take the word back. Okay, let's effectively take the word back. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think, and I, I very much appreciate, yes, you know, as we, as we begin uh, Women's History Month, uh, very much appreciate, you know, situating me within, you know, as a Black Muslim woman, and I'll even use the word identifiably so, because that does uh, offer a nuance to, you know, how I move through the world and how people uh, engage me, which is, you know, part of that larger question of being radicalized, right, of um, understanding that there are people who are visible or invisible, and that there's a um, a history of exclusion and erasure. And so I think that is kind of the impetus for a lot of the work that I do is making people visible. And that can be, of course, in the arts and culture, or that can be in the work that I do in social justice spaces, um, or in the work that I do with the Muslim community is really kind of a desire to intervene, interrupt, and ask people to pause. You know, there's all this desire of bringing people around a table, but so many times I'm sitting there and I'm alone. I'm alone and um, asked to pour into that space, you know, um, the perspective of so many different communities. And that is not true intersectionality. So in that moment, I am radicalized to ask people to stop 
and think about the nuances of the voices that are missing at that quote proverbial table. It's also important and to be explicit, right? That you mentioned being uh, an identifiably um, Muslim, black Muslim woman, uh, partly because you were hijab, uh, but you're also quite public. And in many respects, the contrast between what people perceive and what and who people perceive to be Muslim and validated, and accordingly, the intersections between you know your womanhood, your Muslimness, and your blackness kind of correspond with unique challenges and unique um, <clears throat> issues that you experienced. And I wonder, because I'm I'm remembering standing on the steps of City Hall, and you know a few I think it was a few days before that you you and I speaking and you wondering whether or not you should speak right and and I remember this conversation so well and I think it's such an important instructive conversation to get the background for folks who are listening uh this is in the response to the uprisings of 2020 this is in response to one of the largest protests in Syracuse's history organized by young people um one of which was Shayla's daughter my niece uh and listening to you as a mother, listening to your daughter expressing her pain and the unique layers of that pain, right? Sadia in that moment was talking about being uh, a black girl and having to feel that she was both perceived to be a threat and also made to feel that she was a threat um, and being a Muslim girl and having the feeling of going through a security system that we are all going through post 9-11, where we're going through airports, and this was to get into our school, the kind of heavily mechanized, the heavily militarized, the heavily um, uh, you know, invasive, surveilled approaches that were being discussed as a way to, quote unquote, provide safety. And what that meant for you as a Black mother, as a Muslim mother, as a Black Muslim mother, meant something very different. And I, as I understood it, I think that was the moment that got you to say that you were going to go on the stage. First, did I capture that correctly? And yeah. can you lean into some of that for us? Because I think it is the layers of your identity, wearing hijab, being Black, being Muslim, being a person who converted to Islam, that I think helps to get you to that quote-unquote radicalization point. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, as you, as you, as you talk about it, it's bringing me back and there's, there's a flow of emotion that's coming along with it because I think in hearing not just my daughter, but the other, um, you know, members of Black Youth Pride and other young organizers, I was left with a sense of helplessness. You know, our, our charge, you know, as parents is to be there and to protect and to lay the foundation and all the support so that they can be productive and pour into whatever passions they have in life. And to know that for, I mean, approximately what, eight hours of a day, right? They're in the charge of this other institution, this, this educational institution, which is supposed to help fortify them. But what I'm hearing from them is that is a place of pain, of challenge, in which there isn't a lot of um, advocacy happening. There isn't a lot of people stepping in and stepping up and saying there's something wrong here. Um, and so, the, yes, that is when the moment I said, okay, I need to stand here with my daughter. I need to, to step into um, that space that a lot of parents, you know, are feeling and, and speak out against this particular um, system that is one, this purportedly one of protection, right? These SROs that are in the school and really recognizing that how can they learn? 
How can they learn? How can they progress when they have this kind of um, element present in their school? One that is invasive, one that is watching, one that in their own communities really is one that is disruptive and harmful. So that is the moment that, yes, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I, just, I can't think of the person that says it now, but even if I am afraid, even if my voice is shaking and I was indeed shaking, right, I am going to stand here and I'm going to speak out against this, this particular system that is so um, harmful to our children. And, you know, yet at the same time, right, <clears throat> in finding your voice in the shrill, and I thought that you did excellent that day. I was very proud of you and seeing you on that stage in front of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because as we sit back and reflect, it's, it's kind of as if all of the things that happened in your life corresponded to building up to that moment, interestingly enough. I mean, for instance, you are an artist, right? In every sense of the word, whether it's vocal or expressive, you, you know, lead Lightwork, which is an important institution, which I hope we get a chance to talk to. But this is very much in the sense of both fear, the sense of wanting to engage, the sense of, um, you know, having the need to, to be finding of a voice. Um, it's very much within the tradition of the way that Black artists have contributed to advancing both the conversations and the engagement of people. So I kind of want to do two things. I want to rewind so that we can fast forward. Yeah. Because we started this narrative, this conversation in, in somewhat of the middle. Um, but I'd like to go back to the beginning, right? And, and you know, we've, we've explored a little bit or, or have called out that you know, you being a black Muslim woman um, and, and the ways that that has come to bear, but that wasn't always the case for you. And, and, and can you talk a bit about just, um, you know, being a child that grew up traveling the world because of your, your mother's involvement in the military? Can you talk about um, just the, the, the way that your mother um, has both provided uh, an, an ability for you to identify that voice and, and, um, but also the, the way that art has been kind of intertwined throughout that entire journey process. Absolutely. And I, it's funny because I was thinking about this. Start, this starts with my mom. This starts with my mom, who is um, a classic. It always starts with the mom. It right? always starts with the mom, right? <laughs> it starts with Miss Sunita Surratt, who, yes, was in, in the military. Um, but interestingly, um, her her journey to the arts was protracted in that, you know, she's of a generation where, you know, arts was a nice, you know, bookmark to something else that you did. Um, and so ultimately she was encouraged to do something else um, and came to um, studying opera and uh, being a director uh, later in life. But I do remember, you know, once she did leave the military and, you know, we were taken along, you know, I went to her classes and I sat in the back and I would listen to her and do her vocal training. Um, but oftentimes, you know, the realities are, particularly in the classical um, music genre, there weren't other people who looked like her, you know, and there weren't a lot of children hanging around backstage during practices. Um, and it was very interesting because she always made it clear that not only were we allowed, because this is often a spurs this was a term that's used, allowed in that space, it was important that we were there um, because art is about, it shouldn't be homogenous, right? We should have all of these different voices, all these different stories, all these different perspectives poured into the dance space, the theater space, um, the narrative spaces. Um, and so it was, it was through her that I really had these transformative, transformative moments 
and recognizing that this is a place that I wanted to be. And I wanted to make sure that people who look like me um, had an opportunity to shine as well. So yeah, of course, it always starts with mom, yeah. No, I mean, and I, and I think it's important because as you journeyed along that route, how, how did those lessons have an effect on you as you um, both matured in your age and traveled the world and got to have those perspectives and insights and, and contrast the realities and worlds, um, both the art world, but also cultures and, and you know, communities. Uh, and how did, how did that kind of continue with your, your life in Syracuse from high school and onto university and, and, and even into your conversion? into yeah. Islam. And I just, it, it's fascinating. I, I've actually never uh, asked you this question. Um, <laughs> so I, I get the prerogative as the host to ask yeah. that question. But w- what caused you uh, to to become Muslim? Oh my goodness. Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's rather interesting because the intersection of arts and Islam is, you know, we believe in Qadr, right? We believe in that Allah has, Allah has a plan for us. And the first Muslim woman that I met was standing in front of Syracuse stage waiting for a bus. And so I would come out from rehearsals because I am an alum of the Syracuse University Visual and Performing Arts program. And I would watch her and there was a dignity to her and there was something that drew me to her. So essentially I began to stalk this poor woman and I would sit closer and closer to her on the bus. <laughs> until what, 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 what year is this by the way? Oh my gosh, this is 1990, 1996. So before Gen Z's birth, but continue. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, um, so you know, so I, you know, I ultimately then, you know, said, "May I ask you a question? You know, are you Muslim?" And then she was so generous, in, you know, in talking about Islam and talking about what it meant to her, and ultimately, you know, meeting with me, meeting me at the masjid, so I wasn't there alone, um, and, and introducing me to other Muslim women. And um, I think what resonates with in Islam is similar to what I was talking about being visible. Um, there was no other book or faith tradition where I saw so much focus on women. There are chapters dedicated, a chapter dedicated to women that, you know, there's the, um, when we go make Hajj, we make pilgrimage, right? There's an act of a mother between Marwa and Safa running between those two mountains to found, find water for her, for their child, for her child. So there, there's this visibility uh, for women in Islam that really resonated with me. Um, and ultimately, yeah, that was part of, of why I came to Islam. I mean, there's a multitude of other reasons, but in regards to um, visibility for women, that was a, a key factor, absolutely. And, and that, that starkly contrasts to what the narrative about, about who Muslims and what Muslims are, yeah. uh, which is which I think is an, another fascinating point that I, that I want to at some point in the future probe you on. But, you know, as, as you progress through this journey, um, you become Muslim and um, do you find that there is a conflict between the artwork that you are deeply engaged in and passionate about, right? And your development as an artist um, and as a practitioner of the craft um, and then your ability to navigate that identity. I mean, you seemingly begin to start a family mm-hmm. and have a career um was activism a part of that did, did when when did and i know i alluded to earlier that there was a radicalization point mm-hmm. but there seemingly is a continued kind of progressive point at least i found in myself that there isn't one moment mm-hmm. that 
I mean, it's easy for people to look and say, this is the one moment that quote unquote ra radicalized me. But when you actually take a moment to interrogate it further, there are smaller moments before that that help to build that momentum. And so what were the smaller moments along that journey um, that helped to build? And what, what were the observations that you, that you saw along that path? An awakening is such a cliche word, but a, a realizing, a realizing that um, should you have the bandwidth and the means um, and the desire um, to step into something and say, this is unacceptable. And I'm going to use the tools that I have to do something. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, um, because I had you know, a lot of people in my life who had cultivated relationships with it put me in a position to be able to, to use certain platforms to speak out. Um, I'd say for me, there, there, there were, I mean, of course, we're looking across our nation at the different things that were happening and, and, and pressing us into these conversations, these challenging, difficult and necessary conversations. But I do, you know, in terms of confronting something pointed, and I think I've shared this story with you before, is being at my place of work, where I'd worked at this point for six years at, at the university. And um, it is my practice every year when we have new students um, that I will set up a table out front in the grass because those who walk by can then see the materials we have and I can invite them into the gallery space. Um, and it was on that day that I had two officers called and I couldn't and I couldn't gauge. So I'd been involved in social justice work and I understand profiling. I couldn't quite gauge as to why these two officers were standing before me. And ultimately, you know, one uh, woman, black woman said, finally, after I'm trying to parse out what is happening. Well, we received a call that um, there was a black woman with a turban and she appeared suspicious. Can you repeat that? A black yeah. woman with a turban. It's a black woman with a turban. She appears suspicious. So at that moment, I, you know, I had colleagues, white colleagues who were there who were taken aback and, um, and said to the other officer, white officer, well, who made this call? And it was clear at that point he didn't know what the protocol was because he was, you know, trying to, you know, radio someone. He, he was unclear as to what he should do. But he, it was also clear at that point that they knew they shouldn't be there. Um, I went in and alerted the, my, my director as to what was going on. Um, and, you know, my colleagues proceeded to break down, you know, the setup that was out front, but it was a moment like that. And the ultimate conversations that I had with the institution, with the academic institution in which I work for about what does this mean? And this was, goes back to, you know, stepping into and saying to the, in the mediation process, because ultimately I was asked to be, I was invited to be into a mediation process with the person who made the call, who was a university employee. And what was said to me is, well, I called because you weren't wearing anything that indicated you were allowed, is the word I used before, allowed to be here. And my response was, let me know, what should I and people who look like me where to indicate that I'm allowed to be in this space, that I'm supposed to be in this space, what uniform indicates that I should be here. Um, then she proceeded to tell me that she wasn't a racist. Um, and I, I invited her to, to, to be cr critical of that because mm -hmm. the statements that she were making were in opposition to the action of calling the police on me. So, you know, 
also in that, I said, I need you to understand that I, I can call, you know, Yusuf Abdul Qadr, who at that time was the director of uh, night school here in Syracuse, New York. <laughs> I can <laughs> call, you know, a number of people, but the realities are, and this is again why I do this work, is that there's a lot of people on this campus who will remain silent, who will press on, whose studies might suffer because they don't know where to go. They now feel invisible. They now feel that um, this is a place that is not safe for them. And then how does that then play out in terms of a perception of a community that they don't have the, cap the capacity to do well in higher academia? No, because they're being profiled on this campus. It doesn't feel safe here, right? Their mental health is suffering because they don't feel safe here. So, you know, again, all those kind of microaggressions, those death by a thousand cuts. So for me, that was a pivotal moment in understanding that I have, I have the capacity, I have the means, um, I have tools in which I can help. But, you know, it's difficult to understand, not difficult to understand, it's difficult to know that much like my daughter, who in that space was suffering and, and calling out to co-conspirators, not allies, co-conspirators, I feel, take steps and action to do something to alleviate so that they then can do what they need to do and be that in the Syracuse City School System or here at the university. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, 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 um, you know, as I listen to you say that, I remember that story now. Um, and thank you for sharing that because it's, it's, there are a few things that you mentioned there that are important and instructive, right? The sense of Karen being Karen before there was a Karen, right? Mm -hmm. um, this sense that, you know, we as black, brown folk, and in the unique situation with you in this hyper kind of post 9-11 world that we're in, um, which was very much still active then. And in some respects, we live in the post 9-11 world forever because we've radically changed um, or perhaps have gotten more, more direct about who we are. But you know, it, it's, it's tremendously disconcerting that an official at a university um, would see that a person who is at a desk passing out materials is a threat. Like what, if anyone were to do that, let alone a black person who's Muslim with hijab, um, why is that threatening? But, but more importantly, the response that she gave being, you know, you didn't look like you belong. Mm. And I, I, I say that because that's a chord that I experienced as well at Syracuse. Mm. It, it, and, and I will not, uh, speak to where that specific uh, piece came from, but one of my former colleagues um, in the School of Information Studies um, said something similar to me, right? Like I was walking to look for, ironically enough, a PhD program. <laughs> and, you know, that individual that I approached to ask a question felt the same about me. And as we went to a mediation, she said, well, you didn't look how you belonged here. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had had a number of students who didn't belong here in the building. And my question was, what about me made me look like I didn't belong? Mm -hmm. I mean, is my attire suggestive of that? Because, you know, I, I think I'm a pretty snazzy dresser. <laughs> this probably indicates that I belong here is the fact that I have a book bag, not an indication that I would belong here. 
How about the fact that I preceded the conversation by saying that I'm a, an adjunct faculty here and I was interested in having, a, how, did that not suggest that I belong here? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what about these things didn't suggest and what the person didn't, and again, they responded in the very same way that you did. Well, I'm not a racist and I take you at your word, but there's a dissonance between what you're articulating here mm -hmm. and the experience that, that you admitted happened right that you said happened you said that you said those things so how did they call respond and the part that was most interesting for me and disappointing frankly was that it was a burden on me to be the one to have to make myself vulnerable to have to re-traumatize and experience that to have that conversation i'm hearing a similar kind of thing with you and 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 then you fast forward seven or so years and now your daughter's experiencing similarly right where as she's navigating her adulthood, as she's navigating wearing hijab in, in a school setting, mm -hmm. as she's navigating the realities of a dual identity, um, you know, she's having to confront those very same issues. And I, I wonder if, if, if much has changed in the way of that. And I hope that a lot has, but I, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts. I will say this, and I because and you're raising a beautiful daughter as well. I, I will say I have the privilege of watching and I'm fortified by watching a generation that is more intentional, more curious about, more responsive to um, some of the things that they're seeing happening around them. You know, seeing her aunt, seeing my daughter stand on the steps of City Hall in front of almost 3,000 people and speak her truth and speak to the experiences of her peers and also then watch her help build an organization in which Muslim women in, in allyship and working with um, youth of other faith traditions, you know, serve their community, that it is troublesome, of course, as a parent to know that a lot of the same kind of problems and social ills and pressures and racism and white supremacy that they are navigating it. But I am moved by the power of this generation to say no. I mean, I have learned so much. There have been so many times in which, you know, um, we are, I will say, I still am at times burdened with imposter syndrome. I am still burdened with feeling like, am I allowed to be here? Should I be here? Um, it, it, are my ideas indeed valid? All of that. And there are so many times that I look to my child and I see her posture and I know that I indeed should be there and that my presence is important because there still is a generation in, that we need to be in service to as they, as they find their way and they find, you know, new ways, new imaginings of how we're going to fix <laughs> how we're going to attempt to fix and undo some of this historical trauma that has happened to our communities. No, it's, it's, it's quite befitting that in Women's History Month that we're having this conversation. And I think it's fitting partly because of not just your womanhood, but also your motherhood in that in Islam, there's this notion that heaven is at the foot of the mother. And there's a kind of repetition of this, right? Like, okay, and then after your mother, your mother, and then after your mother, your mother, then after your mother, your mother, then after your mother, then, your mother, then maybe on a good day, if it's sunny, your father. <laughs> and I can assure you being the father of, of a beautiful, brilliant, funny, three-year-old girl that she would drop me like a hot potato over my wife any day of the week. 
um, right. <laughs> unless it's bedtime. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, you're the one who puts me to sleep. But it, there, there is something to, I think, your sense of wanting to affirm a place, a space mm-hmm. for your girls um, <clears throat> and taking on that mantle that I think is impressive. And, and then, and then to, to, to fast forward to where we are now mm-hmm. and what has kind of begun as a contribution to your identity from your mother um, to your awakening and, and, and appreciation of the breadth of your fullness and what you can contribute to seeing what impact that has had on, on Surya's independence and thriving and wanting to engage. There's also a very important consistency about the ways that art has interplayed itself, both in each of your respective lives and the variety of art, whether it's performative art, whether it's visual art, how that has been a part of the, I think, the contribution and the way that you can contribute. But it's also quite consistent with the way that art has it pushed activism and, and pushed both collecting of narratives, telling of stories, and shifting public opinion in profound ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as we begin to kind of close out the interview, I, I want to sit in two specific contributions that I think are so remarkable, both for the city of Syracuse and broadly New York State, in this kind of racial justice response um, that I think art is giving and and particularly black artists are giving uh and and so you are a part of and congratulations i should say by the way on officially becoming a nonprofit organization 501c3 recognized by the government you are one of the founders of an important group of artists in syracuse called the black artist collective yes and you know part of what we discussed last week just as a random phone call was the way that Black Artists Collective is very much important and essential to expressing and healing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you guys recently watched The Wiz and I think that was well received and there have been a number of different activations that you all have been a part of. What is the Black Artists Collective? Who's a part of it? What are y'all doing? Why do you do it? Um, and and, And then I have another question after that. Absolutely. And um, before I launch into that, I mean, I wanted to say that um, generally people have a touchstone artist that kind of is their muse. And when you talk about radicalization, though it's not a a Black playwright, um, Bertolt Brecht, you know, is my favorite, is my favorite. And in terms of radicalization, this is a, a playwright that in the middle of plays would stop, would stop. And a lot of the uh, the works that he did was about the social ills that he saw in the community. He would stop and he would have placards in which he would turn to the audience. They would speak through the fourth wall and they would say, do you see? What are you doing? How are you complicit? Right? And so that's, for me, that is what art is. Art is about, it can be a conduit to conversations that people generally don't want to have. It offers up a unique space in which in the grocery store, in our workspaces, we're not. And the gift of the artist, be it a playwright, a photographer, um, any kind of artist, is saying, consider this. Consider this reality that they're offering to you. What do you see? It's in the seeing, right? It's in the person who's capturing it. It's in the image that you see. It's in the work that you see. Um, and then ultimately, kind of, uh, ultimately, what's what can be gleaned 
from that interaction that we have. We might walk away, we might not agree, and that's okay. Ultimately, you might say, I don't like that work, all right? But how did you arrive there? And that that is what, it's the, the journey that I'm into. And that is what the Black Artist Collective is, ultimately. It was myself and uh, Kiana Williams, um, who we sat together and I said, you know, there really isn't a space in this city um, that isn't tethered to uh, a, a university, isn't tethered to academia, that is for black and brown artists here, that is really pointedly doing advocacy work. What can we do? And from there, we ultimately brought on Jaleel Campbell and then Martika Williams and Alice Olam. And we are the co-founders of this collective. And our charge is to um, have advocacy, intervention and interruption. And that means ultimately, yes, we have performances and we have showcases and we do all that to bring visibility and amplify the talent here. But it's also saying to the funders, how come there isn't equitable allocation of funding into black and brown communities for arts and culture purposes? If we wanna really talk about, quote, revitalizing our city, well then why aren't we making sure that those other elements that really make for a vibrant economy are happening and making sure these dollars are flowing to local artists, particularly historically excluded artists. So that is much of the work that we do. Um, and you know, it's, it's very moving to see how far we've come because it really did start in my living room and us with an idea. Um, and a lot of it saying, we're not quite sure how this works. Um, one of the events that I'm most proud of is that we did um, a Say Their Names. Um, so in the midst of, as you said, the marches that were happening here and across the nation and, th and every day thinking about um, what black and brown people are dealing with, particularly as it pertains to police, we said we need black joy. We also need to have a moment in which we remember that we love each other and that there is community and that we are here for each other. We need to also remember that there is black joy amongst all of this. And so we hosted a space in which that could happen as well. Uh, I thought that event was profound, um, and I, I I got a chance to participate in it, um, and kind of go off the dome and and <laughs> yeah. use my former artistic creativity to impart just how I was feeling. And so I appreciate having been uh, welcomed into that space and invited. And it's it's interesting because you know it it, it reminds me of especially as you say interrupt. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds me of some of the work that uh, Keenan from Thoughts of a Colored Man, like mm -hmm. breaking of the fourth wall, yeah. um, what that as both a form of art and as well as a disruption to what is perceived to be you do not break the fourth wall, but when you do, here's what you do it for. Um, I, I think that's remarkable. And, and I think it kind of rounds us to trying to get a sense of in a place like Syracuse, right? And really the, the Syracuse is an example. It's a microcosm of a broader uh, kind of consistent theme around the country. But, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me because black culture drives all culture in this country. And, and people may not want to admit that, but black artists, black musicians, black athletes um, really drive like all music in this country has mm -hmm. a derivative in the black experience mm -hmm. um, as a response from the pains that we've endured and the joy that we've tried to create for ourselves as we sought to heal from that pain. Yes. Um, we've created amazing, amazing culture that has been appropriated 
And so it's 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 amazing that in Syracuse, where there's a recognition, you know, there's many blues festivals, right? There's jazz festivals, none of which are led by black organizations. And if they are, they're not affiliated with the university. And this isn't to say that those that are affiliated with the university, like the Community Folk Art Center, which is an important and significant institution, uh, doesn't also have merit or value. It certainly does. Um, and I think it's an, an amazing place and space. But as you all in the Black Artists Collective began to explore uh, the 15th Ward and reclaiming the 15th Ward, mm-hmm. I, I can recall you telling me about the ways that you've looked into the, the histories of the respective spaces that no longer exist, that were thriving, um, and wanting to try to reclaim some of that. So it's not just that you're, that the art is entertainment only, and by the way, not to suggest that entertainment isn't important, mm-hmm. it is, but it's also instructive about driving the conversations towards healing of the community. So can you, can you talk a bit about that bit of the work? Absolutely. And I'd like to say to your point, um, I have the privilege of serving on the board of the Community Folk Art Center. And also we have here too, you know, affiliated with the University of La Casita. Um, my, my pushback always when, when, that is, when that is brought up is that we see other institutions, other white institutions, there's a plethora, right? So it's, it's why can we not too have a multitude in which, and all these organizations can be in service in different ways. Effectively, you know, you, you, were, you were looking at reclaiming some of the 15th Ward and the histories and, and, you know, both because of the fact that there aren't as many institutions currently yes. where the Black community resides largely, but also that there was a long legacy of, of restaurants and shops and yes. businesses that you all are helping to uncover in your activism work. And that art isn't just entertainment, but it also is you know, motivating into helping to imagine new realities that are sometimes based on pre-existing realities. Can, can you lean into that a bit? Absolutely. And I, and I would add to that, to that um, something that I've been sharing with people in some of the advocacy work that I'm doing with uh, Creators Rebuild New York, which I'm, I hope we touch on, is that art is palliative. You know, um, you know, I have a deep respect for the essential workers that help you know, us navigate this global pandemic, but I put forth that, you know, the artists who were on Zoom singing and dancing and making ceramics for us for almost two years for free, that indeed that was palliative for the soul so that people could then go back out and navigate this thing that we were challenged with um, for for almost two years and are still um, navigating our way through. So absolutely, I think that, you know, thinking about you know, these stories, I mean, I know that you, know, you did a, a great deal of work here in sharing out, um, and a lot of people here did a lot of work around the 15th Ward, and I began to think about, and this is about, you know, looking at works that here in Syracuse, often there's a retrospective shared out in our newspapers of looking back at Syracuse. Let's look at the streets and the neighborhoods, and it came to, I, I began to realize I didn't see us. Well, that's not true. I would see a porter or a maid, but I didn't see community. And I was like, well, that means that someone, someone intentionally decided we were not worthy. Our, we were not visibly a part of this history. So um, with, the guy, uh, with the help of the Negro Motorist Guide, uh, which was a book that was put together to literally help black and brown people uh, get from point A to point B in this nation safely and find uh, places to eat, places to lay their head um, as they traveled. Um, I was able to look at, uh, currently I'm looking at 1940s to 1950s, of Syracuse, New York, and what businesses were here 
you know, what entrepreneurial endeavors were being undertaken by black people here in Syracuse. And, you know, right in the heart of our city, East Washington Street um, and Almond Street and West Fayette, there are businesses that were thriving in there for almost a decade, a decade. And I... And and I and I say and we talk you know we talk to students and students talk to the community about having you know radicalizing our curriculums right and having um, having curriculums that reflect the histories of the communities in which they sit. This is what I would like our kids to know, right? Is that um, it isn't new when you talk about re envisioning our city. Well, then let's look at who was there, right? And the realities are that we had thriving businesses there, a diversity of businesses in the heart of our city. Um, and so I'm really excited to continue to delve into um, the archives at the Onondaga Historical Association and continue to mine and find businesses like the Savoy Hotel and the Harlem Restaurant that, again, were in service to and supporting um, the Black community here in Syracuse. So for the last question, and, it, and you, you've, you've kind of led me into that question and, and have helped to you know, drive it, right? And, and you are part of this statewide endeavor. And, and I think it's important for people to recognize that part of helping get us out of the Great Depression, there was an investment in the construction industry and in the trades industry to, to deal with the housing crises um, and a rebuilding of the country that included artists, right? Like to both capture narratives of, you know, people who were formerly enslaved or their descendants uh, to 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 tell the history of America, to to really con- to demonstrate the, the the culture that we have as a part of our reimagining and rebuilding, mm-hmm. and you know that was oftentimes largely exclusive, as many of the New Deal era programs were exclusive to white people and excluded um, black and and brown and and indigenous and other communities of color, mm-hmm. and. In this most recent iteration of, of our uh, pandemic-induced recession, um, you know, there's been uh, a significant pot of money in New York State that has been pulled together to begin to do similarly for artists, right? To to yeah. enable artists the ability to be compensated for their craft, be compensated for the the essential work that they've given, as you so eloquently put, uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, and and the continued contributions that art and artists make, I understand there's a there there is an opportunity for people who are artists to get some of those funds. Can you can you speak to that before we before we sound off the show today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, and it's everything that you you spoke to so eloquently there. Um, essentially, so it is the Creatives Rebuild New York um, initiative, and it is. Um, Funding was uh, pulled together through the Ford Foundation, the Andrew Mellon Foundation, and the Stavros Foundation. And essentially, it is a recognition that um, the global pandemic, you know, had uh, had a tremendous effect on the arts economy, the creative economy, and a lot of artists saw a complete erosion of their um, of their financial foundation. So there are two programs. One is a guaranteed income program in which an artist can uh, put into a sustainability algorithm calculator um, and ultimately determine if they meet the financial threshold, which is uh, the po- at or below the poverty line, and they can get 18, uh, sorry, $1,000 a month for 18 months. And it's really that simple. 
Um, part of the reason I came on board for this was um, so many times I do sit at tables in which there's funding happening and walk away wondering why I don't see more, um, uh, more diversity represented in those who are receiving funding. Um, so I came on board for this because they were very intentional in thinking about the various barriers to um, communities receiving funding, funding and are very clear about centering historically excluded communities um, in regards to getting these dollars. The one uh, that people are very much excited about as well is the Artist Employment Program. And that is a program that is done in partnership with a nonprofit in which the uh, there's a relationship, a mutually beneficial relationship between the artist and the institution in which they will have uh, be in service to the artist and the artist will be in service to the institution. And also more importantly, or not more importantly, also important is that they are in service to the community in which they sit. So it's been a profound experience to be able to connect with artists and let them know that this opportunity is available to them. A lot of them don't believe it. <laughs> you know, I have to get on the phone and say, this is indeed a real opportunity. I want you to apply. They've thought again about every kind of barrier that could be, um, uh, could be in front of people to be, to not be able to receive these funds. So, you know, when I, when I, when I talk to people, they say, well, I'm on SSI or I get TANF, or you know, I may not be able to take this money because ultimately it will change my financial income and it could affect my housing. They've actually brought on legal services to make sure that doesn't happen to people. Um, for the guaranteed income, if you are undocumented, there is a way in which you can receive these funds. Um, so there's all these different kinds of things. If you're a small institution and you don't have HR structure in, in, in place, you can actually opt into a work, a work group so that they will manage all of that for you. So if you would like more information, um, I'm sure you'll share it out um, when you post this, but also it's creativesrebuildnewyork.org and you can find more, more uh, details about the funding guidelines and how to apply. And I should say that the deadline is March 25th. Thank you so much, Chayla, for both sharing your personal story, your journey, and the way that art really has helped and continues to help drive healing activism and perspective. I, I think that you've given us a number of, of, of important both insights here, and, and, I, and I hope that folks who are in the artist community uh, can, can benefit from this, and we will make sure to share this out. Um, want to thank you one more time for being here, and Hopefully you get a chance to share uh, a little bit about, you know, you hopefully you've been able to get a chance to share a bit about what role the Black Artist Collective can play and it's playing in the role that, you know, act, art can play towards activism and, and advancing our future. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for making the space for me here today. Thank you. You've been listening to Afro Futures. I'm your host, Yusuf Abdul Qadir. I've had the chance to interview the brilliant, the funny, the smart uh, Chela Sarad, uh, my sister-in-law twice removed. Thank <laughs> you so much, Chela. Have a good afternoon. You as well. Thank you. Afro Futures is produced by WAER Public Radio and Kevin Kloss. 